breathe. Just breathe into this and we will tell you if this god-awful pandemic is over yet. Yes, this week on Download This Show, how far off is a breathalyzer that can test for COVID-19? Plus, Reddit is an online messaging board that covers pretty much every topic under the sun and has sustained for many years. So why has it lasted so long and why are they now setting up a new office in Australia? Plus, big news for one of Uber's biggest competitors and should we shame politicians for being on their phones too much? All that and much more. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And I guess this week, Cam Wilson, Associate Editor with Crikey. Welcome back to Download This Show. Hey, Mark. And Natasha Gillizzo from the Australian Financial Review. Thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. Story has come out of the US. Is there now a breathalyzer for COVID, Natasha? Yeah, well, I guess one of the benefits of COVID producing a bit of a wartime effort in the virus and health industry is that there's these other innovations breaking through, one of them being this idea of being able to detect disease from our breath, which is pretty cool. I haven't seen one of these devices myself, but two companies, Breathamix and Silver Factory Technology, are pretty pumped that they're getting closer to being able to detect COVID-19 from a breath test rather than the nasty throat swab that most of us have probably experienced at least once so far. See, I was really banking on COVID-sniffing dogs as the next evolution of this technology, so it's kind of disappointing that this is where tech companies have gone. Cam, (laughs) I mean, look, it's one thing for them to announce it, but I mean, what is the underlying science here? Like, how is it supposed to actually work? Yeah, so what they do, these different researchers and companies, is it's less about detecting COVID itself and more about detecting other signals in your breath that suggest you have COVID. So they, they, for instance, I think the spiro nose, which is one of the promising candidates, it looks for how much methanol you have coming out of your breath, which is kind of a sign of how good your digestion is going, and other indicators of how much inflammation you have, which can all be told just through a breathalyzer. So they use that to figure out like, well, you have, you know, these kinds of chemicals coming out at the moment. And that is pretty comfortably suggests that you have COVID at the moment. And I think what they found was like the one that I mentioned was about 98% successful at finding when someone did have COVID. It did have a lot of false positives, which means that they would often get test results coming back saying that you had something or you might have something, but you didn't. But I think the, the kind of, you know, you'd probably rather have it be overly cautious about catching COVID than less. Mm. You have to figure that, I mean, look, it's worth pointing out, none of this technology is necessarily out in the marketplace. We don't know if it necessarily works. We're just trying to get a sense of what might be coming down the pipeline. You'd have to assume that if you're using sort of secondary markers, there'd be an efficacy issue there, right? You, you wouldn't. Ne- it doesn't necessarily confirm the existence of COVID-19. It confirms the existence of things that are similar to COVID-19. You'd, you'd have to consider that there'd be that component, right? Yeah, exactly. And and there are some candidates which are testing directly for COVID, but I think that is a, uh, it seems to be a more difficult process. So, I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, in the UK at the moment, they are, uh, they have a lot of these 15 minute um, tests that you can kind of do at home that get sent out for free. Anyone can get them and people are doing them all the time. And similar to what we kind of deal with here, you know, there are, there are kind of false positives, but the idea is you'd rather be overly cautious and be 
like, hey, you might not be okay, um, then let something go through. We're doing something not too dissimilar at the moment, like temperature checks, which happen um, at stores like i've been rejected from one not because i had covid but because i had just been for a run but the idea is you'd rather be safe than sorry with these kinds of things and, and it allows you to do further investigation but at the very least kind of stop um, any potential breaches hopefully oh, there is a great video doing the rounds at the moment of a woman trying to enter her building and that's an automated temperature test natasha and it basically is rejecting her because she's because uh, she's it's hot it's 38 degrees out and so they won't pick up her temperature well, yeah, there's a, there is a kind of like mildly humorous element to that. But on the flip side, it's sort of interesting. Uh, it is this example of science and technology also forming this legalistic lawyerly function, right, and actually enforcing the rules. And I think if those tests get it wrong, it's actually pretty serious, especially if you think about that could mean people can't yeah, get into their, their home building, go into an office. And whilst I guess there is an argument for better safe than sorry when it comes to accuracy of detecting diseases, COVID-19 obviously being the most topical one right now, I actually think that the bar should be pretty high before these diagnostic tools come out to market, especially if you know a false positive results in some other negative consequence for that individual. Well, I guess we'll wait and see how that technology rolls out, if indeed it rolls out at all. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And it has been called the front page of the internet. Reddit is sort of one of the, the crucial components of the sort of social news ecosystem, but perhaps one that doesn't get quite as much attention as some of the other ones. And yet they've decided that they're going to set up shop in Australia, Cam. Walk to me through what Reddit has recently decided. So Reddit has come out and said that they're going to open up this Australian office and my understanding of it is it seems to be mostly about really ramping up their advertising uh, services here. They do say that they're going to be hiring programming and other roles as well, but it really seems like it's a play to get more of those advertising dollars from Australia. Obviously, there are Australians are quite wealthy compared to a lot of the rest of the world. And according to statistics that Reddit released when they kind of announced this, they were saying that Australian users are very keen users. They said that they are uh, increased, I think they said 40% increase year on year in Australian Reddit users, which I think is probably goes without saying that we just spent the last year inside. So I'm not sure that that may have been growth <laughs> that necessarily sustained if we weren't stuck in a pandemic. But nevertheless, like what's kind of happening is we're seeing more people using Reddit. It, it seems to have pivoted from something that was, I don't know, something that I always like, I use it, but I associate as really being used by a lot of, I guess, internet power users and not necessarily <laughs> user friendly. We're seeing it kind of get... I love the concept uh, of a power user. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just think like, you know, if people haven't seen it, the UI, like the how it actually looks is pretty like uh, not super inviting and it's it can seem like pretty text heavy and dry. And they've kind of improved that a bit, but really I think they've kind of seen, uh, they've seen growth recently. I have a couple of theories why, but regardless, more people are kind of getting into it and they're hoping to capitalize on that. Good forward sell for your theories, which we will come back to. <laughs> Natasha, why is it that Reddit still occupies such an important place? Because it isn't part, you know, it's not like it's not the website you talk about with your parents or your friends, right? But it is this incredibly important part of the ecosystem where things that go viral or news stories or trends, a lot of them have, you know, Reddit is a crucial part of their explosion, right? And this has been this way for a long time, right? Why is it that Reddit has sort of sustained this position in, I guess, Australian or well, global internet culture? I think it kind of reminds me of real like pure play internet days when it felt 
like the internet was a separate world to your real life in some ways. So now I feel that a lot of social media platforms like Instagram or LinkedIn, Twitter, and other realms of our digital identity are more aligned with who we are in the real world, whether it's, you know, using your real name or having photos or representations of what you do in real life. Whereas Reddit's kind of a space that you can go or a discussion forum that you can read that feels a bit, yeah, a bit more pure, pure play internet-y. Also, I think some of the discussion threads can be really intelligent and helpful. I, you know, as you know, I report on the tech startup world and a lot of people uh, in that world use it to connect with other people and answer questions when they're solving problems in terms of building their business. You know, where can I get a guy who could do this? How do I solve this? And and they've found the community on Reddit super helpful in that regard. So it's not just about kind of having anonymous forums to chat. I think that's a very, uh, you know, crude way of looking at it. It's also about connecting to people online that literally don't exist in your day-to-day sphere and connecting to different communities that might not be accessible in your day-to-day. Does that ring true to you, Cam? Yeah, I think so. For a long time, Reddit has really felt like the connective, I guess, tissue of a lot of the internet where information seems to kind of come out there and then go out to other platforms. You know, it's a bit of a joke that, you know, you'll see something uh, on Reddit and then it'll go to Twitter and then it'll end up on Facebook like two weeks later. But my my theory, which I... Yes, go I, on. I'm, I'm, Unveil I'm, your I'm theory pretty, pretty for proud me. Of. Yeah, yeah, here we go. <laughs> my theory is not that Reddit has significantly changed its product. My theory is that people in general have become more like power users. Like we have all become more comfortable with the internet so that it doesn't really, you know, seem as kind of a foreign place. We're, we're used to how the internet works and its many mechanics. So rather than Reddit, you know, really stepping up its game in terms of bringing other people in, we've all like become intense power users who are who are really keen to, to use Reddit. And, and you can see that like, you know, the GameStop stuff that happened this year where you had this community that already exists, but really explode in popularity as it got its, you know, the weight of this many million people community behind um, making these meme stocks really explode in popularity. We saw that as everyone realized, like, you know, all of a sudden that people who've always been kind of interested in this stuff could kind of get into a community like that and realize that, uh, you know, that it wasn't that kind of foreign at all. So, you know, what was once a big, I guess, learning curve now seems natural to a lot of us because of all the time we spent online. I like Cam's power user theory, although I don't think that all internet users uh, use Reddit. I definitely think it's true that people spend more time online than ever before. But I still think there is something unique about people who go on Reddit and why they use Reddit. And I guess that's going to be the challenge for the Australian team on the ground, whether it's their sales team, their engineering team, their community building team, to work out what that unique culture is and harness it for whether they're trying to build better ad tech products or whether they're trying to reach out to interest groups who want to push their political agenda on Reddit in a more organized fashion. I do think they'll need to understand the kind of unique culture of what Reddit is all about to succeed in that mission. I do actually wonder what is specific about the way Australians interact with Reddit, if there are any sort of distinctions there. And I'm sure it's known internally. It's just a question of whether or not you could know it externally. I mean, the other thing that I just want to throw back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is that the UX, the user experience, it's ugly. And it's been ugly since day one. It is a confusing layout if you aren't familiar with it. Cam, but like that clearly doesn't get in the way of them having traffic and getting advertisers because it stayed that way for a really long time, save for a few like minor aesthetic changes. Why? 
Yeah, I don't know. It, to me, it almost seems like a very pure form of internet where there's not that many bells and whistles. And, and it really hasn't significantly changed that much in all the time that I've used it, which would be now, oh my God, more than a decade. It doesn't look as sleek as something like, you know, Facebook or Twitter, although, you know, many people think they're kind of becoming more bloated. But I, I, I don't know. I just think that, you know, it, it seems to have more of a learning curve. But once people get over that, there's so much information there. And one thing that I do think is is kind of notable about it that shows that they are ahead of the curve is that Reddit is organized around not about the people who you connect with on the platform. So, you know, you don't add friends. It's about joining communities. So, you know, you join the Australia subreddit or you join the Oz Finance subreddit. And so rather than being about your individual connections and also, I guess, kind of the idea of building up a personal following, which provides kind of incentives to say, well, how many people can I, you know, make follow me and grow my audience so that I can monetize it? Mm. It's more about, I guess, for for a lack of a better phrase, like the love of the game, like people are not... <laughs> They're not on the Oz Finance subreddit because they want to become super famous for that. They just they're they're really into it. They're super nerdy about it, and um, I, th- I think those that makes some really nice spaces. That's a really good point, actually. I hadn't really considered that. That there is um, it's not ego free, but it certainly takes the focus off you as a personal brand and onto the, like the community and the content. Cam, what I mean, you're you're a Reddit user. What do you actually use it for? I mean, I use it a lot for journalism, and I'm surprised still how much journalists generally don't use it because it's it's like I said before it really does seem like the connective tissue of a lot of the internet you know you see when things are kind of newsworthy they kind of pop up there and 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 the most interesting kind of content is sorted to the top the other thing is that I think that makes it a little bit different is that you know with things like Twitter and Facebook the the stats that people that that these companies care about is engagement versus on Reddit you can upvote things but you can also downvote things and that sounds like it might encourage Courage, uh, negativity. But, you know, with something like, I'll give you an example. If you tweet something and it's a terrible take, you know, everyone's like, that's so stupid. All the time that people comment on it, that adds to the engagement, which means more people will see it. So really the incentive, if you want to be seen as by as many people as possible, isn't to have something that a lot of people support, but a lot of people react to. Whereas Reddit, you know, if someone's putting something on there, that's just, you know, just a terrible take or is, is completely wrong or something, it can be downvoted. And that allows, I think, more power from the community over what people see versus rather than what's just keeping people on the website as long as possible. That's really interesting that if you actually add a, a like a positive or negative marker of, of, I guess, consumer sentiment, you can actually have a more positive environment because you have got clarity around whether people actually like or actually don't like. Whereas the flattening of engagement, particularly on Twitter, means that all engagement, good or bad, it's like the all publicity is good publicity mantra. And actually, in reality, no, not all publicity is good publicity. That's really interesting. Natasha, if you were to redesign Reddit to make it better, what is the first thing you would do? It does feel quite mask to me. So I don't know if I'd want to take that element away because that's not a bad thing, but maybe I would consider making it feel a little bit a little bit more kind of like female friendly, but that's such an abstract idea. So I don't really know what that means, but I think there's something there could be something that makes it feel more accessible for female users. Not that there's any like, you know, remarkable hostility or anything like that on the platform. I just think in terms of just, I'm going off a pure aesthetic play here. There could be something subtle in the aesthetics that either give it that more gender agnostic feel or make it a bit more inviting for women. 
but I'm not a designer, so I don't know what that is. I'm just going off how I respond to it as a user. Yeah, no, and look, that's actually quite a common, I think, refrain. For you, Cam, what would you change? Yeah, that's a tough one. I I do think that at the moment, you know, all these subreddits, which is the name for these sub-communities, are moderated by people who are volunteers. And it is very difficult um, for them to kind of make any money from that. And, and, you know, that's actually part of the reason it's been good is because there's not an incentive to like build a community that you can monetize. But the flip side is you do have a lot of people who are giving a lot of time for free to, you know, moderate these communities. It would be good if there was a way to kind of compensate that, but I I think it is a very, um, it's a very tricky balance. All right. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Cam Wilson from Crikey and Natasha Gillazo from the Australian Financial Review. Mark Fennell is my name. And you may have seen this logo driving around the streets of whichever city you live in, Diddy. Diddy is a ride hailing service uh, originates from China, although interesting week they've had. So they debuted on the US stock market last week and then they were ordered to remove their app from Chinese online stores in the same week. Natasha, well, let's start with the removal from uh, from online stores. Why were they asked to do that by the Chinese government? So the branch of the Chinese government that asked them to remove or asked app stores to remove Didi uh, from, from having them there is called the Cyberspace Administration of China. And their argument is that they had concerns with how Didi was handling some of their customer data, which is really interesting to me because that actually echoes a lot of the activity, I think, that uh, and rhetoric we we hear from uh, similar U.S. bodies in terms of their complaints against U.S. big techs. There seems to be quite some strong parallels there. I don't know if that was the actual reason they were concerned with Didi, but it was certainly the given reason that's been reported for why they've been forcibly removed from um, acquiring new customers or new downloads on the Chinese equivalents of what the App Store and Google Play are. Yeah, so let's talk about the relationship between those two big news events this week. Cam, is there any evidence to suggest that partly what is happening to Didi in China is a result of what's happening with Didi in the US? Is there anything to link those two things? Well, we know that there is this this big fight that's happening generally about between nations and these tech companies and how they store data in those countries and how they move information across to other countries. I think there was a law that was passed either early this year or late last year that was saying in the US that was saying, well, if Chinese government bodies audit, you know, your tech company, we also need to have the ability to to sign off on that audit here. We need to look into these books. We we can't just take their word for it. Was essentially the crux of it. The idea of all all this information and all this power which you get from tank companies is an increasingly important I guess fight it's a proxy battle between countries it's also those administrations trying to have that power themselves it's not just we're seeing battles between countries but we're also seeing battles between countries and the tech companies as tech companies become stronger and stronger have more information and in some ways threaten the absolute power that nation states have so what, how is that likely to impact on Diddy going forward? Because, I mean, they're in this unusual position where they have this, you know, huge market share in, in China, obviously a huge market already, but America is growth. It's pure growth for them, right? So how are they going to balance the, you know, living in these two worlds as a company, Cam? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> very delicately. <laughs> I, um, I mean, it, it's, it's extremely difficult and you do see companies say, oh, we've kind of, you know, siloed a lot of our operation between different countries. You know, that's what happened in Australia. In Australia, the app was not taken down from the Australian app stores. Diddy users could continue to use it as normal and there was no effect on operations. But they have to kind of walk this tightrope between making sure, you know, governments are happy back home while also appeasing governments that they are expanding to. And and very often you're seeing that becomes difficult, particularly when you're dealing with, with China, which which is, has shown a real desire to be more hands-on with this kind of stuff. And they said, or analysts kind of said, that these tech companies in China had years and years of, I think they called it like barbarian growth, like essentially they were unregulated, they could do whatever they wanted. And now I guess the roosters are coming, the chickens are coming home to roost, the roosters are coming home to roost. Some, some manner of poultry will be <laughs> doing roosters. some kind of roosting. Anyway, they're having to deal with that now. It's a real issue. And um, I, I, I think like we'll only see this happen more and more as time goes on because this is a matter of, of real power for, for countries like China and the US. I mean, look, it, it, it's, a, it's been a fascinating kind of decade and a half of watching American companies try and open in China with varying levels of success. And then now we're entering this relatively new phrase where it's now massively successful Chinese companies trying to open in Western markets. I mean, the big example obviously would be a company like ByteDance, who are the company behind TikTok. Are there lessons that a company like Diddy could learn from looking at the way ByteDance has managed that transition into multiple markets at once, Natasha? I mean, I think all these businesses, it's so fascinating because the way that they grow globally and where they have their headquarters and where they have their main audience and market, it's a new kind of uh, terrain for tech businesses in general. I think that at all times, they just need to factor in regulatory risks of different jurisdictions and also what we call, I guess, platform risk. Platform risk being how likely are you to get booted off the app store or whatever platform that you're you're reliant on. Let's take an ASX-listed company that's actually headquartered in San Francisco, Life360. It's a family safety tracking app, and it's doing really well. But this is kind of an interesting example of a company that's listed in Australia, so subject to Australian listing rules, headquartered in the US where most of its growth is, but looking for other countries to grow to. But if Apple or Google were to boot the company off the app store for whatever reason, for breaching their policies, similar to the situation with Didi, although obviously that's been led by the Chinese Communist Party rather than uh, Chinese tech companies, it's sort of game over. And it's really interesting and really tough. And these are the kind of delicate factors that these companies need to take into account. But what are you going to do, right? That's power at play. And uh, this is, it's, it's been ever thus. It's just manifesting in a different way for this technological era that we're in. And finally here on Download This Show, if you are the sort of exciting person that likes to tune in to watch Question Time, I know, there's lots of you, you will have noticed something. It's that politicians sitting in Question Time spend an enormous amount of time on their phones, just scrolling. Now, this isn't unique to Australia. Uh, in fact, it happens in parliaments all around the world. And at least one person overseas has decided to shame politicians for doing this cam. What's happened? A Belgian artist has done what he's called an artwork called Flemish Scrollers, where he has taken the live stream of his parliament and used uh, artificial intelligence to scan and see whenever a 
um, politician appears to be using their phone during proceedings. And then once the algorithm has figured out, you know, said, oh, I reckon that person's using it, they use facial recognition to figure out which politician it is. And then it posts to Twitter and Instagram saying, Oi, can you like can you pay attention? <laughs> and the the point is, as you kind of alluded to, is to kind of uh, is to shame politicians who are spending their time uh, when they're supposed to be, you know, legislating, you know, the meetings of of the country's greatest minds. They seem to be using their time playing on their phone. All right, now look, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not here to defend politicians, particularly not at the moment, given the circumstance we're all in right now. But is it not possible, Natasha, that they are on their phones doing work, right? Like question time lasts a long time. Is it not possible that they're like answering work emails? And is that potentially not a thing to be like, I don't know, somewhat lauded? That's multitasking, right? I mean, if you've ever sat and watched Question Time via the live stream, it's uh, one of the, sometimes it can be very spicy and there's a lot going on, but there's, there is a lot of sitting around and waiting. I guess I found this news story or this piece an opportunity to pause and reflect on smartphone culture and tech culture in general. It's interesting the way that these devices have crept into spaces that I think we previously might have thought of as sacrosanct or sacred. And I think for some people, the kind of, uh, whether it's the, old Englishy vibe of parliament that kind of feels like such a space it's sort of the equivalent of a your GP whipping out their phone and scrolling through Instagram as you describe your flu symptoms it would feel kind of weird and like an invasion or crossing of a boundary but this is like we've seen smartphones enter more and more places where it would have at once been absurd to be. I'm reading Tiffany Schlein's book at the moment, 24-6, and she and her family have been doing a tech Shabbat, taking one day off a week from screens for about a decade. And it's a really, really incredible, firstly, family memoir, but second kind of look around how having boundaries with technology, what's sustainable, what's work in a really shame-free way, not the screen time is bad way because phones are awesome. We're using technology right now to connect remotely and record this podcast, but in a way that actually looks at where and when is it appropriate to be on your phone? What's legitimate multitasking versus your attention being pulled in eight directions in a way that's effective, not for you and not for your country that you're meant to writing legislation for? Yeah. And I think that kind of sums up the two things that make me most uncomfortable about this. One, which is the shaming, which, and and don't get me wrong, like I'm all for shaming politicians. It just doesn't, I'm not 100% sure this is necessarily the right sort of criteria to be shaming them on. And the other thing, which is it measures time. And, you know, we've had a pretty lengthy discussion over the last couple of years about moving away from this concept of screen time as being the only metric with which we measure our relationship with technology and moving it onto something more, I guess, qualitative, understanding what you're doing on that phone and is it adding to your personal or your professional life. And I know in Parliament they've at various different points in Australia discussed short-term bans and things like that. Is it not worth having a slightly smarter conversation about what exactly are we doing on our phones, Cam, and when is it healthy and when is it not healthy, right? Probably, but also I reckon stuff that like politicians shouldn't be using them in Parliament. I mean, like people are watching this and, and trying to see what the nation's debates are. And even if they are, you know, doing some work, which I'm sure like some of them are, I know many of them aren't, it is also, it is undeniably used as a way to kind of show that I'm not interested. You know, you even see the Prime Minister turn away from an opposition uh, party member during question time and scroll on his phone when they're speaking about him. So look, I mean, there are always like, 
like, you know, we can have nuance in this, but as far as I'm concerned, like stuff nuance here, just get off your phone for like 90 minutes, you know, the few days a week, the few weeks of the year that you're in there to talk about what's happening in the country. Yeah, I feel pretty comfortable saying that. I'm kind of anti a shaming approach, even with politicians in question time with the phone. But I, I just personally think that multitasking is a bit of a myth when it comes to checking emails on or messages on, on your phone. We all do our best work when we monotask, but that's just my perspective. Natasha Gillazo from the AFR, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Cam, I would say goodbye to you, but I just saw a really interesting tweet, so I'm just going to look at that. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show, Cam Wilson. It was an absolute pleasure. Good, <laughs> Good to be on the show for the last time. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happened with Cam Wilson? Dunno. He says something made it up, Mark, and he just never came back. I'm kidding. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you back on from Crikey, Cam Wilson, and we will see you next week for a brand new episode of Download This Show. My name is Mark Fennell. Have a great week. <laughs> 